0: Hey, it's Steven here. I love everything about podcasts, the intimacy, the depth, the ability to listen wherever. And I assume because you're listening to this show that you love podcasts, too. At the very least, I know two things about you. You know how to download a podcast and you like to go deep on energy. So I want to make sure you're all aware of our other Green Tech Media podcast, The Interchange. It was formerly behind a paywall, but now it is open to all of you. In this show, my co-host Shale Khan and I go deep on the forces guiding the global energy transformation. We, alongside you and our guests, try to figure out exactly where we're headed. If you're on your phone, go to the links in the show notes and subscribe to The Interchange right now. There's a link to our iTunes page and a link to our RSS feed. And you can take that and integrate it into the podcast app of your choice. Pretty soon we'll be on Stitcher, too. Now a word to GTM Squared subscribers. Only the latest five episodes of The Interchange are going to be public, so that means you still get access to all of our shows, including transcripts of both that show and The Energy Gang. We have a lot of demand for transcripts, so if you aren't a Squared member yet, go check them out. If you want to go back and revisit a quote or data point we made, don't rewind and go on a blind search. Just search our archive of transcripts. And of course, Squares get continued insights and newsletters from our writers and analysts that you can't get on the public site. So next week, we're going to be launching the Interchange Publicly to Everyone. And I know that if you love this podcast, you'll love that one too. For our first episode, we have a compelling conversation about the ridiculous complexity of deep decarbonization with Jesse Jenkins, and I think it gets to the heart of what we're trying to accomplish on the show. Upcoming episodes include a conversation with former Tesla executive Mateo Jaramillo on the future of storage and AEE's Lisa Francis on the intricacies of New York's electricity market transformation. We're trying to really grapple with the most complicated things and make them accessible and understandable. So whether you're listening on the web or on your phone, go to the show notes and subscribe via iTunes, or just grab the RSS feed and paste the URL into the podcast app of your choice, or simply follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks so much for subscribing. And of course, a big shout-out to our sponsor, Keiko New Energy the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's keiko, K-A-C-O, newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, we're talking Westinghouse. One of the most pivotal nuclear players has filed for bankruptcy protection. What does it mean for America's newest reactors that are already behind schedule and over budget? Then Brexit. Will the UK end its climate commitments now that it's officially leaving the European Union? Finally, a lesson in traffic control. What we can learn about driver behavior from highway crises in Georgia and Los Angeles. In Boston, welcome. I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton. Jagger Shaw in Washington, D.C. and New York City, respectively. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions. I sense a change in your voice, and that must mean that baseball season's here.
1: <laughs> baseball season, and I finally made my way through S-Town so I could have time to prep for this show. I got both of you on that
0: podcast. You both seem to like it, yeah?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm from the South, so I'm a big Flannery O'Connor fan, and it's kind of in that vein.
0: Right. Uh, I've been saying... That it feels like it feels like you're listening to an audio book, like a, a Faulkner novel or something, rather than a traditional true crime podcast. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He, um, I've sensed a change in his tone too, but that must be because he's got an appointment with his financial planner after this, which is decidedly <laughs> not as cool as S Town or baseball.
2: Well, I did make it through S Town, and I do have a cold, and so that you're probably hearing that. You were just so into S-Town, you forgot to
0: take care of your health, and you got sick. (laughs) That's right. Well, I can think of things that are far, far less cool than all of those things, like Westinghouse's financial problems. Last week, the nuclear giant and electric industry pioneer filed for bankruptcy protection after problems at two nuclear projects in South Carolina and Georgia got way too big to handle. Toshiba, the Japanese parent corporation of Westinghouse, is writing off billions. Officials in Georgia and South Carolina are wondering whether plants there are going to get built, and the Trump administration is monitoring the situation closely, wondering if Westinghouse will get bought by a Chinese investor, and hoping that billions in taxpayer investments don't also get lost. So Westinghouse has been involved in the design and development of around half of the nuclear reactors around the world. This is a comp- company that was not only a, a, an early pioneer in the electricity industry but a major pioneer in uh, nuclear reactor design. So its challenges are the nuclear industry's challenges. Jigger, what what happened to this once mighty nuclear company?
2: Well, you know, I don't know that there is one thing that happened to this one mighty Uh, nuclear company. I mean, in general, I would say Westinghouse is more of a name than it is the company that we've all uh, come to know and love, right? It's it's owned by Japanese Toshiba. And, you know, I think that in order to get what largely looks like project finance deals done with the loan guarantees from the federal government, but also rate Payer um, guarantees from Georgia and South Carolina. Um, th- there was there was a lot of mandates that the that that Toshiba had to agree to in terms of um, in terms of cost, right? So when these cost overruns occurred on nuclear plants, they sort of had to eat some of those, and then they were able to rate base some of those with the rate payers. And in the end, their cost overruns were just gigantic. It was. It was so large that um, that it may actually take down Toshiba as an entire company. Right. So Toshiba,
0: so Westinghouse currently has debt worth nine point eight billion dollars. Toshiba paid six billion dollars, or or five and a half billion dollars, for Westinghouse. Um, cost overruns at the Vogel plant in Georgia are I think about a billion and a half dollars, and in South Carolina. The Sumner plant is $3 billion over budget, so it's just a financial calamity any way you look at it. The interesting piece of this story isn't that it's Toshiba's fault or it's Westinghouse's fault. Well, one could say it's Westinghouse's fault, but not necessarily their fault in, in the design of the reactor. It appears to hinge on this one large contractor, the Shaw Group, that bought up a former engineering group that had experience in nuclear power plant development but hasn't, you know, hadn't designed or built a plant in many decades. So essentially it was a shell of its former self. Westinghouse relied on this group and then this group failed to deliver on most of its promises, which caused this downward spiral very early on in the power plant development process and now the company is really suffering for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, these were really first-of-a-kind contracts that they signed, right? I mean, I mean, Westinghouse slash Toshiba actually guaranteed that the projects were going to come online by 2016, 2017, right? I mean, that, that had really never been done before. And then, you know, the concrete got poured incorrectly, and then there was a lawsuit between around Westinghouse, S&W, and then S&W's parent company, Chicago, you know, Bridge and Iron Company, and then to resolve that litigation, you know, Westinghouse ended up buying um, S&W or tried to. I mean, it's just like, the whole thing like comes down to what I was, you know, like I've said before in the podcast is whether, you know, we're really prepared anymore in this country to do big things like this
1: weren't there also some design changes that had to be made um as a result of the nuclear regulatory commission requiring some safeguarding from terror attacks so there were things that were kind of outside um outside influencers in the expense
2: yeah there were but I, but i think that that's sort of one of the reasons why you can't do big deals anymore right this is very common is when you when it takes you 7 years to build something um things change in that 7 year period of time
0: Right. And and the problems with this contractor and the initial design and execution of the plant goes back to your earlier point on whether or not we are prepared to do big things. And there are some who look at this collapse and say, this is the problem with the nuclear industry generally. But one could, make, one could make the argument that this is actually an American problem, that we haven't done enough to build these plants. We've had a four-decade hiatus, and we just don't have the engineering expertise or the execution expertise to be able to get these plants done on time and built efficiently. And so this is really a problem with sort of the, the American construct, not the nuclear industry generally. Now, there is another argument, and that is nuclear power plants take a long time to build. And what you're doing when you're building a power plant that takes 8, 10, 12 years, maybe even longer to build, is you're betting on what power markets are going to look like in a decade. And as we know, that is a very, very difficult gamble today given how fast things are changing.
1: Yeah, and you are also betting on policy staying consistent. So one of the policies that just got upended was the fact that we need a low carbon future and our government has decided we don't. And that was one of the biggest arguments that the nuclear industry was making to show that they were really trying to do the right thing. And now that's not even there as an argument.
0: Right, I made that point when we talked about the CPP last time, and that was the Trump administration both says it wants to promote nuclear power, but now wants to take away the one federal policy that was in place that possibly could have promoted new nuclear power plants. We can't have it both ways.
1: Yeah. And there's one thing that the nuclear industry has enjoyed for a very long time that we don't ever talk about, which is the Price-Anderson Act, which is they basically get no-fault insurance that is backed up by the federal government. And- um, it's a shared um, insurance that insurers will not cover these plants at all. These these companies cannot afford to purchase insurance. And so they've enjoyed that uh, since 1957, and it was just re-upped in 2005 for another 20 years. So that's been out there as a policy benefit that this industry has had for a very long time.
2: That's true. But I look, I, I mean, just to take the other side of that, when you look at the claims, against the Price-Anderson Act from the federal government, they've been very, very small. And so it's not like the federal government has had uh, billions and billions of dollars of liabilities that have come from that. Um, I I fully grant you that that the private sector can't provide that, but I don't think the nuclear industry has been a burden on the federal government's finances.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Absolutely, that's true. It's, it's for catastrophic incidents, and we haven't had a, one of those recently. But what I would say is that they've had that and that has enabled them to not have to purchase insurance, which they would not be able to get on the street.
0: Let me ask the question again. Is this a nuclear industry problem or is this a company specific problem? There have been dozens and dozens and dozens of bankruptcies in solar, but very few people would point to those and say, that's a problem with solar. That it's, you know, as we have discussed, it's a problem with specific business models with companies trying to grow too quickly with companies approaching the market the wrong way so westinghouse's problems were very specific to this contractor and these couple of plants and therefore toshiba's problems have been um have been you know exacerbated by the high price it paid for westinghouse and, and this does bleed through the nuclear industry because Westinghouse is responsible for so many projects around the world. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's a, it's a structural nuclear problem. It seems to hinge on the execution of a couple of plants. What do you guys think?
2: I mean, the, the nuclear industry is a calcified industry that has not had innovation in over 30 years, right? The AP1000, which they're building here, is the same damn thing with a few minor tweaks that they built in the 70s and 80s. I mean, Arriva has, you know, which is the French company that basically builds these nuclear plants, hasn't had any innovation in that time. Neither has Westinghouse, neither has these other groups, right? You're talking about companies that really haven't pursued innovation in decades. And that is really the the reason why nuclear is at such a crossroads. I mean, Rod Adams wrote a great article um, in, um, in Forbes on March 27th about how the nuclear industry really does need to finally get rid of these sort of third generation nuclear reactor designs and move fully to the small modular reactors of the future, because it's, it's obvious to everyone that these plants just cannot, um, you know, be sustained. I mean, this, this construction cycle, et cetera, just can't be handled in the West.
1: Yeah, I mean, the solar industry is so disaggregated, and there's so many ways that you can pivot if you're a solar company and so many different parts of the value chain you can be on that you know, these are just a few very large companies that, as Jigger said, are really the incumbents. And, and for them to change something, it's really hard to pivot those guys. Well,
0: clearly, you know, the world has changed for nuclear, according to Schellenberger's new group, this is Michael Schellenberger, who's a nuclear advocate. They've done, they put together this nuclear tracker and they show that the world is going to lose twice as much nuclear as it gains by 2030. So this trend is absolutely going to continue. And Westinghouse is uh, a big indicator of, of the financial troubles and construction problems in the nuclear industry.
2: Well, in talking about Westinghouse and the nuclear industry, our next topic, um, you know, with Brexit is is full of nuclear intrigue.
0: You know where we are in the show. This is a point where we talk about Keiko New Energy, our sponsor. We are so grateful for their support. So Keiko is one of the fastest growing inverter companies throughout the Americas. It's a result of a commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a large portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility skill applications. Leading developers all around the world continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality and history at keiko-newenergy.com. That's k-a-c-o-newenergy.com. Thank you so much for their support. Well, let's get to Brexit. Brexit is now beginning. Britain is officially working to unwind and redefine its relationship with the European Union, a historical change to post-World War II political alliances it also brings a potential change to a more recent alliance, the region-wide emissions and renewable energy targets agreed upon by EU member countries in 2008. That year, the EU created the 2020 target, which calls for getting 20% primary energy from renewables, 20% improvement in efficiency, and a 20% emissions cut by 2020. It later created this ridiculously ambitious target of an 80-95% to 95% emissions cut by 2050. So as Britain tries to renegotiate with the EU, there's a debate about whether it should scrap those region-wide targets, because Britain is, after all, behind on those targets. But this new poll shows majority support among conservatives for retaining its targets and other European environmental protections. This is an interesting trend here, Catherine, it kind of mirrors what we see in the US, a move by some to back away from national commitments, but broad support for those commitments within the conservative base.
1: Yeah, and you have to look at what Parliament is doing and putting out as well. So I reached out to um, a woman who is in my cohort at the World Economic Forum, who is Baroness Brown of Cambridge. She's a member of the House of Lords. She's also on the EU Select Committee, um, has produced, they've produced two reports, Um, the House of Lords did an EU committee report on Brexit environment and climate change impacts. And then there was also a committee on climate change, which is an independent body on on which she sits, but it advises the UK on climate policy. And they've also looked at what's going to happen with Brexit on climate goals. And what um, Baroness Brown said is that the UK CEO... two targets are in UK legislation. They're not in EU legislation for the UK that they signed on to Paris as the U- as part of the EU, but also as the UK separately. So that won't impact them. Um, They are also part of this EU emission trading scheme, which they may or may not stay part of. But even if they don't stay part of the trading scheme, they would still retain their UK CO2 targets and they would just have to change the way they account for them. And then finally, she said that the renewable target numbers, like what you were saying, the 20 percent renewable, 20 percent energy efficiency, are not defined in the UK legislation. So they may redefine those so that they allow for, for example, more nuclear energy or whatever the whatever the mix may be, but she feels like the UK is on pretty good footing um, on their targets. Now, they definitely want to beef up in legislation in Parliament to make sure that they continue on that pathway, but she felt pretty good about what they already have in legislation.
0: That's interesting because in conversations I've had and in media reports, I'm hearing that you know, currency risks and political risk are delaying projects. The UK government has scrapped a number of promotion programs for, you know, it's cut back feed in tariffs, it's cut back its energy efficiency programs, eliminated them altogether, cut out the Department of Energy and Climate Change. So the signals are really bad. And I'm actually kind of surprised to hear a more bullish take.
1: Yeah, she really does feel strongly that the UK has been a really major influence on how the EU has conducted its policy, and that that relationship is going to change, you know, they'll have to find other ways to influence the EU, but she's more she was more concerned about EU legislation than she was about UK and feels like they're going to be on a good path. Now, someone else I talked to there said that there were two things that were worrisome for them. One was that the URATOM, which is a nuclear treaty, if the UK is withdrawing from that treaty, that will impact nuclear power. It will reduce competition. And remember, we've talked about this Hinkley Point C project that could be um, have more problems as a result of that. And also, that is the body for safety regulation and sharing all that information about nukes. So that could be an issue. And the other piece that I I heard people worried about were really the research collaboration. There's this H-2020 EU framework program for research and innovation that allows for grants and a lot of sharing of R&D funding, but also R&D intelligence. And there are people that are worried about that, too.
2: Well, so, you know, one of the biggest proponents of Brexit was Michael Liebrich at um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And, you know, he basically makes... Oh, I didn't realize he was a proponent. Oh, not just a proponent like a vocal proponent who fought people publicly on Twitter over it. Um, Jeez, I'm so
0: plugged into Energy Twitter. I'm surprised I missed all that.
2: I think Michael is, um, you know, trying to get an elected office in London one day. But, um, But, you know, his point is basically similar to Others around coal, right, that the UK has actually done really a remarkable job at shutting down a lot of their coal plants um, in stark contrast to Germany, um, who has shut down their nuclear plants instead of shutting down their coal plants. And um, even though he's not for the Hinckley project because he thinks it's, you know, a lot of um, money that could have been spent more wisely, um, he he really thinks the UK is already on track to decarbonizing Faster than the rest of the EU, particularly Germany, at a much more affordable price, and so that you know it's 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 good to it's good for the UK to to separate itself. You know, my own point of view is really more about like you know how important it is to bring everyone along, right? I think that the Paris Agreement, but even in the United States, I mean, if California fully decarbonizes, but the rest of the country doesn't follow it then that doesn't mean that the united states decarbonized um and so i worry that it's a very sort of um you know insular way of thinking um to just have your state in this case the uk um decarbonize without helping the rest of the continent uh decarbonize as well
1: yeah it's about burden sharing really the the big question that needs to be
0: answered during these negotiations is whether the uk will Stay in or be allowed to stay in intraday power trading. And this is a really crucial trading scheme set up among EU member countries and even countries that are not within the EU, but are, you know, closely trading with the bloc like Norway, for example. Um and, and that question still needs to be answered. Is the UK going to be involved in intraday power trading? Because if they are not, it certainly makes th- it harder for them to smooth out variability on the grid with increased renewables.
2: Well, this is the same technical question we're asking in California, right? Because California believes that they may have to curtail some of their solar next year if they don't um, expand the the pool, the, you know, California ISO to include Oregon and, you know, some right, of that other broader Western states. grid. Yeah. So I, you know, my sense is that the the technical answer will probably win the day for the UK there, as opposed to the political piece.
0: Going back to my original setup point, I was really struck at the survey that just came out of conservative voters who said they wanted to keep in place EU quotas on efficiency, on renewable energy, on climate, on fishing, on s- standards on beaches and in bodies of water. They, 60% of conservative voters said that they accepted the scientific consensus on human caused climate change. So, Regardless of what happens to policies in the short term, clearly there's still pretty broad political support for this. However, it looks long term, whether or not there's increased collaboration with the EU or the UK just sets out on its own. Clearly, people still want this to happen, um, even though there's not clarity on how exactly it will happen.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. I think the UK is not as energy efficient as Germany and some of the other players, so I wouldn't be surprised that people actually want it to be more energy efficient. I I still, you know, worry that I think having the UK's voice from the outside is not the same as having it from the inside. And so I do think that net net this is going to mean that some of the smartest and, you know, brightest folks out of the UK won't be as um integrally part of the decarbonization effort of Europe, um, which will be a net loss. Let's go back to Georgia. So Atlanta
0: is eighth on the list of cities with the worst traffic in the world. When a portion of Interstate 85 caught fire and collapsed last week, the media and local officials expected mayhem on the highways, but it has not materialized yet. The same thing happened in 2011 in Los Angeles when a major bridge was torn down and everyone expected Armageddon. In fact, it was called Carmageddon, but it didn't happen. Turns out people respond to signals about driving. When told not to drive or to avoid a particular area, people didn't drive, and they avoided that area. So can we learn anything about these experiences as more cities look to cut down on driving for environmental and health reasons? Jigger, what do you think? You flagged this story for us.
2: Well, I've been following it for a very long time. You know, basically the way traffic works is that it's, you know, based on a macro basis, it's the number of people who believe that they can, you know, time efficiently use the roads to get to where their destination is. Um, And so, and then the other piece from a micro perspective, it's if drivers can switch lanes, then you don't get gridlock, right? So if you can keep 1.5 to 2 seconds of distance between you and the car ahead of you, then, you know, so cars can get in and out of traffic, then you find that, that um, you know, that the traffic moves actually quite smoothly. Um, I don't know of anyone who, who knows exactly what 1.25
0: seconds of it's, distance is. Like. It's
2: a pretty <laughs> large distance. It's it's something yeah, on the order of like 4 to 5 you know, cars of of distance, and so um, so that so that folks can feel like they can cut in front of you and then cut and then cut out, right? But people don't want that to happen, and and the reason I care about this so much is not because of the fascinating experiment which is being played out on the citizens of Atlanta right now, but it's more because I think um, that we are wasting gargantuan amounts of money on building new roads and extending, you know, for traffic mitigation. It's amazing how often local townships, states, and the federal government um, say that we need to expand a road because more people are moving in, and therefore we need to expand a road. And it's so expensive to do so. I think it's so much cheaper, and I think what these studies are showing is that it's so much cheaper to do things that just change the psyche of the driver um, around you know, car sharing or HOV lanes or, you know, figuring out mass transit in ways that are far more productive.
1: Yeah, I reached out to um, Allie Kelly, who's the executive director of something called The Ray. And The Ray is named after Ray Anderson, who was considered the greenest CEO of America. He Took a billion dollar carpeting company and made it sustainable, and so they they've got the 16 miles of I 85 between Atlanta and Montgomery, Alabama, and they're experimenting with what is the highway of the future, and you know how do autonomous vehicles impact that? How do we have cars communicate with each other? How can we change the dimensions of roads and bridges so, Jigger, like you say, we don't have to build such big ones? How do we make them safer? And then how do you free up all that right of way and green space to do other things with it? That could be like building solar. It could be doing all kinds of interesting things with that space that you'll be able to free up the right-of-way with. So they're using this 16-mile stretch to really kind of test what are these technologies. And I know they're doing these in other towns too, but it's it's pretty interesting that it's happening right on I-85.
0: But people want bigger roads, wider bridges, and it's a politically tricky thing to do to say, no, sorry, we're going to be smarter about our infrastructure, which to many drivers means you're going to limit our opportunities. Now, the argument against that is that people have more opportunities than ever, where there's more teleworking opportunities, we have more car sharing, we have more HOV lanes, cities are more walkable and accessible, public transportation in some regions has improved. Um, you know, there are, there are a whole host of options that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. However, when some people hear smart transportation planning what they hear is you're limiting their options and this just feels still very politically sticky even though we have more
2: options than ever oh of course it's politically sticky but i think that the that that you've got to look at this in the totality of of infrastructure right so You know, if you look at like the American Civil Engineering um, Society of Civil Engineers report card, which they put out every year and always give us a D plus. I don't know why they don't just give us an F, but whatever. Um, And they're saying we're like, you know, two trillion or five trillion or eight trillion, depending on the the numbers that they're quoting um, behind an infrastructure. That same thing is true for the electricity grid, right? I mean, part of my argument for the electricity grid has always been that, What we're offering on the smart grid and the grid edge and distributed generation is 90% cheaper than just building out new central generation power plants and new transmission lines and distribution lines and all sorts of other stuff like we did in the 1970s. And the same argument applies here, that we are absolutely out of money to replace what we built during the Eisenhower administration to, you know, uh, again, right? We just, we just don't, the concrete labor, everything's more expensive. We have to find more cost-effective ways of moving people around. And we have those technologies, and they now need to start being deployed. I think we need, instead of like A through F, we need a Trump rating
0: for infrastructure. So like the worst infrastructure is sad, and the best is like bigly or very, very good. Something like that. Maybe, maybe that's the way we can mix it up.
1: I like that, and I, I actually don't think people want bigger roads. I think they want roads that they can move faster on. Like, I don't care when I'm driving on the New Jersey Turnpike how many lanes there are, but I do care when it doesn't move.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and and I think that and I think that we have um, engineers that are you know and researchers that are really smart about how to make that happen. Some of those are very, very politically. Uh, charged ideas, things like you know um, the the changing tolls on these toll roads uh, depending on traffic that you have on like what is that Route 200 Connector or something in Maryland, um, uh, all the way to you know really figuring out how to get uh, companies to sponsor uh, buses for their employees like Google and Facebook and a lot of other folks are doing. I mean the Bay Area is filled with these uh, these solutions. Um, I mean, my uncle in Houston has been using such a solution um, there for like twenty years, and so I definitely think that this carpooling and you know, and then of course when we have self driving vehicles, I think that can be even more intelligent. But um, but like I I I feel very strongly that the amount of innovation that we've experienced in electricity is available for transportation. They're just not as open minded to it.
0: But let's get to the heart of of these lessons in Atlanta and in Los Angeles. And that is that we don't necessarily even need all this technical innovation or infrastructure innovation. Market signals or, 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 or communication signals, I should say, actually cause people to change behavior. So when local officials came out and said, avoid these areas, it's going to be hell. And the press reported on uh, potential problems and they put signs up on billboards and so forth people responded and they stayed away. And then when they found out, for example, in Los Angeles in 2012, during the second weekend of construction of that bridge, that traffic wasn't as bad as everyone said it was going to be, more people came out onto the roads. But the most basic communication clearly causes people to change their behavior in a fairly big way. And well, I think we often assume That traffic is just sort of this static thing. It's unchanging. People's, uh, particularly during the workday, people's patterns of behavior just don't change that much. And, you know, even with basic communication efforts, you can change that behavior.
2: Yeah, but I don't think that's a permanent solution. Like, for instance, no, I don't think so either. No. Yeah. When Gray Davis was the governor of California and told everybody to shift their laundry to nighttime to help preserve the California grid. That worked for, you know, something on the order of two years and then people went back to their old habits. And so I don't think people make these types of permanent switches, um, which is why we need to integrate the kind of technology we're talking about. Separately, I mean, everyone does check traffic before they go out, right? That's what Google Maps and Waze really is, is it predicts how long it's going to take you to get to your destination based on current traffic conditions that Google is monitoring with billions of data points. Um, And it does not, like, seem to really you know, shift traffic in a really big way. I don't think traffic times in terms of waiting has gone down because of that.
0: So these public relations efforts are like the equivalent of Jimmy Carter saying, put on another sweater or turn down your thermostat.
2: Exactly. A Christmas sweater in this case, <laughs> a uh, an ugly Christmas sweater. And so, yeah, no, I think I really do think we have to have real city planning. And I think you see that with, you know, Harriet Tregoning um, and the work she did in Washington, D.C. And then there's others in New York City that have, have realized that public space is actually more important than roads and they've permanently shut down parts of, um, parts of the roadways to, uh, make them into public spaces for cafes and others. And have found that there's been no net net negative impacts on traffic, but there has been huge positive impacts on air pollution, um, and asthma rates and that kind of stuff. Atlanta was, um, was, um, was ground zero on this study during the Atlanta Olympics because they basically shut down all the highways during the Atlanta Olympics. And they found that, um, you know, emergency room visits for asthma went down by 90 plus percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now in D.C., the metro is almost non-functional and it's, it's in an effort to make it better. So I know it will get better, but they're doing all this work on it. So we constantly get pushes, you know, whatever you do, don't take the red line or don't take the orange line. So there's a lot of bus riding, a lot of lift uh, and Uber use, and of course traffic.
0: Ah, public transportation—it's an unforgiving—it's an unforgiving space. Anyway, let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what's your story this week?
1: Yeah, so I know we've been following the administration and this sort of lack of science, lack of climate work. Well, interestingly, this week, both chambers of uh, both the House and the Senate and the House on a voice vote passed a bill that Lamar Smith, and I don't know if you'll remember this. He's a Republican from Texas, chairman of the House Science Committee that basically doesn't believe in climate change or science and, and questions science magazine. He said that this bill they passed would make our weather industry great again. And this bill, H.R. 353, directs the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association to increase funding for weather research, considering all sorts of new data and prioritizing earlier warnings for severe weather. So this is supposedly a huge step toward increasing our resistance to res- and resilience to severe weather, which is... Sort of ironic, considering they're rolling back all of our regulations. But hey, if we can get to him by saying it's all a weather thing and he's OK with that, I'm OK with that.
2: Well, and I think this is exactly what we're going to keep seeing is is Congress thwarting the president who tried to cut that budget by 50 percent, right? Um, and instead, you know, putting in uh, these types of, you know, funding mechanisms because they actually need the data.
1: Yes. And because we are having storms. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs>
0: What's your insight this week, Jigger?
2: So as many of you guys know, um, I think at the last Grid Edge conference, we talked about fuel cells with Eric Wesoff. You know, we have been funding um, um, Plug Power's uh, deployment of fuel cells for Walmart. Um, Yesterday, they announced an up to $600 million deal to replace all of Amazon's uh, lead acid batteries for their forklifts into fuel cells. And you know, the more I study this market, the more I realize just how ev- how much everyone hates lead acid batteries for warehouses. I just didn't know this that so like one sixteenth of a warehouse's um, square footage is set aside for batteries and charging infrastructure for forklifts and watering batteries. I mean, everyone just hates lead acid batteries. So you're seeing a, hu- a huge push to convert these roughly one million forklifts into either lithium-ion phosphate-powered uh, uh, batteries or to fuel cells.
0: Do you think that they'll make a full acquisition, Amazon?
2: I doubt it. I think Amazon you know, got a bunch of free stock from Plug um, as part of this deal to sweeten the deal. But I can't imagine that Amazon actually wants to get into the fuel cell manufacturing business.
0: You know, I heard this great phrase from Wilson Rickerson, who is a longtime consultant and expert in this field. He worked for, I think he led Meister Consultants, and he has a consulting firm called Rickerson Strategies. And we were talking about some government resiliency programs that had been couched in climate terms under the Obama administration that are now being framed differently. And he said, "Call it stashing the climate jewels. And I loved that. I loved that term. And it's something that we're seeing more and more. Catherine, this goes back to your point about the build that would improve weather monitoring. I mean, those are, you know, many of those programs are inherently going to help our understanding of the evolution of climate as well. And you just don't talk about climate change, and somehow you can come up with money for programs that, you know, still satisfy the mission to do something about climate change or monitor the problem. You know, and this brings me to a conversation I had yesterday with Christine Harada, who is the former chief sustainability officer at the GSA. And she left in January. And she seemed really bullish about what GSA was going to be able to do to execute its ESPC contracts and sign more PPAs for renewable energy. Because the Department of Defense is so firmly behind these procurement efforts, and because the GSA, although it's no longer talking about climate change, under the Obama administration, they always framed this stuff in terms of greenhouse gas reductions and, and, the, and the broader climate goals of the government but these contracts are you know saving taxpayers money today and the government's no longer paying a, str- a high premium for renewable energy and so she seemed really confident that things weren't going to change under the Trump administration that they would continue to execute on their goals and also a good sign was under that executive order for the CPP She and many others expected them to actually roll back many of GSA's targets, and those did not get touched as part of the executive order. So another bright spot amidst um, a a darkening sky over Washington, D.C. That's the end of the show, folks. Thanks for joining us. We are everywhere in podcast land, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, NPR One, any app you choose. Don't forget that the Interchange podcast will soon be public. You can follow the link in our show notes to subscribe to that on iTunes. We should soon be on Stitcher. So uh, make sure you you keep tuned to that as well. And we'll be dropping our first episode next week publicly. Um, Reach out to us any way you can. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, podcasts at greentechmedia.com is our email address. Our Twitter handle is The Energy Gang. You'll see all of our individual Twitter handles linked on that page. Um, we've got a bunch of live shows coming up in May and June. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events for more on those. Jigger does still owe me a few cocktails. So if you come to those events, you can meet us at a cocktail reception and, and see him get a free cocktail
2: and hand it over to me.
1: Um, he probably owes me something, too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You've got serious. That's debt my guess. Time. I, I, I pay my debts in federal government time.
0: <laughs> well, you certainly pay your debts in time to this podcast, and that we appreciate. <laughs> but I'm still waiting for those cocktails. Um, enjoy your financial planning, Jigger. I will. Catherine, happy baseball season. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next time.